I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Please take your seats quickly, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Tennis Weekly with Joel, Kim and Chris. On today's Surbiton Diary special sponsored by DownloadTennis.com. Joel gets to put his questions to Andy Murray. Katie Balter talks British number one. And we take you behind the scenes at Surbiton. Chris, today we are doing something a little bit different at Tennis Weekly HQ. We are going to be talking about my trip to Surbiton last week, which is a challenger stroke ITF event. Very fun event because it is a combined tournament. And uh, yeah, I was there not as a fan, but as part of the media. I feel like you might have also been there as a bit of a fan. (laughs) Surely when you spoke to Andy Murray, you felt like a fan still. The inner fan was certainly there and it was it was trying to jump out and I almost had to like oppress it when I was face to face with Andy Murray in the in the press conferencing facility. Um, yes, uh, it was it was all very exciting. New experiences, got to chat to lots of British players. Um, but yeah, it was at moments it was kind of like pinch yourself. Well, it must be. I mean, and it seems rather fitting. 350 episodes it took to get to speak to Andy Murray. <laughs> Is that the end of the podcast? Is this our final well, no, episode? I'm already think we can we can we can we can pack our bags or, you know, we can we can Take shut a week it down. Off. Yeah, no, um, it was no genuinely some amazing experiences. And uh, to think the podcast has come so far from the days of me genuinely talking into a microphone on a picnic bench in Melbourne, in Melbourne Arena, Melbourne Park during the Australian Open uh, back when, well, it was back when Kyle Edmund got to the semi-finals, that event, just to, just to give that you an idea ago. of how long ago it was. So to go from that to interviewing Andy Murray, one of my all-time favourite players who... Your wallpaper. Who I got your to wallpaper, see. don't show your phone to yeah. him. <laughs> I know, my iPhone wallpaper, but also I got to see him win firsthand uh, his first Grand Slam against Novak Djokovic at the US Open in back in 2012. So I've come full circle. And then also they've come full circle because fast forward... He's winning his 23rd Grand Slam and Andy Murray's winning his second challenger this year. I know. There was such a contrast and I'm not going to lie, there was that odd feeling. And I think that's the only annoying thing about Surbiton is this fact that it sits during the second week of um, of the French Open. So there is a bit of, of clashing going on there. And sometimes you you wonder, like, where, where should I be looking? I've got one eye on the on the French Open results. But I've also got the eye on the on the live tennis in on the grass. Yeah, and from a journalistic perspective, surely the media was a bit split. What was the turnout yeah. like? Because they had to have an eye on Paris, but the British interest certainly was in Surbiton. Mm. 
Yeah, so um, yeah, it was quite it was quite interesting media kind of mix. Um, you got had your kind of your traditional broadsheets there, uh, local media and publications as well, and then of of course uh, tennis weekly podcast. Just um, making sure that they got Putting kind of the hard some questions. questions. Exactly the hard questions. So um, exactly. yeah, it was quite it was quite fascinating because obviously you have obviously lots of people coming at it from different angles. Some people want to get information on the match that's just happened whereas you know we're looking for information and opinions and insight from players on topics that are in tennis that are interesting to our tennis fans so um, I'm really excited that we've got some clips coming up from Andy Murray uh, from Katie Balter as well and we've also got um, an interview with one of the volunteers of the event so um, we were able to kind of dig a little bit deeper into some of the tennis issues going on at the moment related to British tennis and the tour and put it to some of the some of these big players like Andy Murray all angles covered and you did mention the media facilities and that's something that I think <laughs> I did see a picture of this Joel and I'd love yes. you to tell me a bit more about this because in the Billie Jean King Cup for example there's a full press conference room and we was were that treated we were treated like kings weren't we oh in, we were uh, there the... we, we were setting the audio afterwards <laughs> and we to be fair I, I felt like I was treated like a king at, at Surbiton but yeah very much a different uh, environment in terms of it was a porter cabin and a porter cabin, uh, like a crate facility. Uh, you got you got your table, you got you put your laptop on, and uh, yeah, with the heat that was going on throughout the week, we had a few. We had to bring in a few fans to make it to make it bearable. But that's what it's all about, really, isn't it? And I think. It must be one of those moments when imagine if you're the tournament organizer and suddenly you get the text saying not only is Andy Murray playing, Dan Evans is playing as well. And it goes from being, you know, a regular sort of challenger mm. to being really in the spotlight for Murray's first matches on grass. It's um, must be quite the challenge for them to put on. Yeah, exactly. And I think I think what's amazing and actually really nice about a setup like Surbiton is that it is held at a tennis a tennis and rackets club. Um, you know, it's not in a, a big arena or um, you know, at a like an event specific site. It's actually held at a kind of a traditional club. So it's got that really traditional feel you know there was the marquee as well which came to my rescue which we'll get on to um <laughs> when uh, the rain came down but um i really liked that kind of traditional setup and andy murray spoke during the week actually about how he really likes the you know the local low-key setup the nature of it with the clubhouse his family were, were down there as well it felt really kind of um, homely, I think. You know, he doesn't live that far away from from the site, so um, it's kind of a really nice, I think, kind of roll into the tour events that come after the clay season officially closes on the on the Sunday with the you know the men's open final in Roland Garros. Yeah, and for anyone who's kind of looking at maybe attending, obviously it's happened this year, but for next year, in terms of the the nature of the event, you said it was very kind of relaxed, but also it has kind of that sort of, uh, not like country club sort of feel, but uh, that racket sport club kind of feel. Um, what would you say in terms of, you get quite a variety of players. I mean, you do also have the women's yeah. matches as well. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, you get some really quality players, you know, play, play it for, you know, an event that you might not look at or disregard because it's not at the complete, like, elite level of, of ATP and WTA. It does sit on the 
the challenger circuit for the the men and on the ITF circuit for the women. But I mean, you still get some incredible players. I mean, Tatiana Maria was there this week. She's a Wimbledon semi finalist. Um, you Nina Wickmeyer. She was there in the in the women's draw. She won the women's event. She's a U.S. Open semi-finalist all back in, in, in 2009. You've got Andy Murray, of course. You've got loads of British interest. And you've got loads of Aussie interest as well. I thought at times it was almost kind of like a a precursor to the ashes, uh, given the amount, the number of Aussies there and the, the number of Brits there as well. So more of a Canberra 250 sort of event <laughs> in at stature, times it maybe. Did, at times it did feel like that. And uh, yeah, I mean, Andy Murray, he faced um, on the route to the final. He had um, Jordan Thompson and uh, Jason Kubler um, in the quarters as well. So to get to the final, he had to come through his his, his share of Aussies. But um, yeah, he on performance-wise, he was he was very good. I think, um, you know, at times he you know did face adversity. This wasn't just a... A stroll through to to win the title. Um, I certainly think he had some tests. If there's one thing, maybe he could he could look. I think to improve it was the fact that it felt like a few times in the the matches against Thompson and Kubler, he was going a set up, he was going a break up, but he was letting his opponent, I think, come back into it. And uh, he was really tested in that quarterfinal against Kubler. Took, got taken to three. Um, he got it done in the end. And um, it was a similar st- sort of story for, you know, in the Thompson match. I think he, he broke, you know, first 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 top Jordan Thompson service game, he broke. Um, but again, the set went to a tie break. So I think there are still kind of things to work on. But at the same time, a title is a title. And uh, yeah, it was fantastic to see. Well, I mean, given how many Aussies are there and how much success they've had there in the past, it's almost a surprise <laughs> he didn't face an Aussie in the final. But uh, where he... was Kokinakis? Actually, I think Kokinakis was there. I think he went out earlier in the earlier in the tournament. I think he's already out of potentially Nottingham as well. Yeah. But there were two finals, as we said that day. There was the final on the grass courts of Surbiton. And there was also a final in which history was made that we have talked about on the previous <laughs> podcast. But Joel, what an opportunity to ask the big question, the Novak Djokovic goat question to Andy Murray in the flesh. So we'd love to hear about how did you come up with the question and what did well, he say? It was fascinating because he, uh, we, we spoke to him in the semi-final and he said he was rooting for Novak Djokovic in the final. So that was kind of where the inspiration for the, the, the question came from. And, you know, you know, we were in an era of of the big four at, at one point. So Murray's had so many kind of battles with Novak Djokovic over the years. I've seen that in person at, at the US Open. But, you know, he had a, a French Open final with him um, as well. So um, it was really interesting to see, you know, what his message was post Novak win in the final to get to Grand Slam 23 to be outright in terms of male champions one above Rafa and this is what he had to say and just a word on Novak Djokovic he won today became the outright uh, male Grand Slam uh, title holder with 23 Um, you said yesterday you were going to be rooting for him do you have any words of of congratulations uh, for him based on that? Yeah, I mean, I think like, what he's achieved is is incredible. Um, I think the way that he's done it as well. Um, I don't know, like he's sort of been the underdog a, a little bit, and um, you know, was quite far behind in the in the race. And the way that he sort of persevered and sort of stayed the the distance, you know, yeah, it's been it's been amazing. And I, I know how difficult it is to win one. Um, and those guys, what they've done, winning 
I think 23, 22 and 20 or something like that. It's it's ridiculous. Um, and yeah, you know, he he make it's, doesn't make it look easy, but he makes it look a lot easier than what he should. <laughs> um, and yeah, I'm I'm happy for him. Um, he, he you know he deserves it. Um, and yeah, hopefully. Well, he, after he beat me in the final of the French Open, when he won his, um, that was for him to, I think he held all, all four slams mm-hmm. at the same time, but his first French Open, like he lost a bit of motivation. So maybe, you know, he can take his eye off the ball for the next few weeks um, <laughs> heading into Wimbledon. But um, yeah, I, I just, yeah, congratulations to him. It's an incredible achievement. I mean, that's such a great point in terms of the fact that of players on the tour that know they Murray knows how hard it is to win one I mean he was in so many finals before he got that win and he's been in so many finals and he's been on the wrong side of them at times and it is right if he thinks it's unbelievable to win 20 22 and 23 I mean for us it's unbelievable but for him to say that it really makes it super clear that although it does look easy there's nothing easy about winning a slam no, exactly. I think that's what makes it so impressive. And I think that's probably in terms of kind of perspectives as you know, Andy Murray talking from the point of being a Grand Slam champion. It was just very interesting, I think, to hear it from that level, like multiple Grand Slam champion to multiple Grand Slam champion. And, uh, you know, although their rivalry has been you know, fierce over the years and you'd say, at times, you know, without Novak Djokovic, that, that Andy Murray would have many more probably Grand Slams in his, you know, in his trophy cabinet. But um, yeah, there's still that kind of that respect there. And I thought it was quite interesting. He did make a nod to their French Open final in 2016 when he spoke about the fact that, um, you know, Djokovic won that. He won that in four sets. And when he won that, he then held all four slam titles but after that moment he said that Djokovic lost um, a bit of motivation um, in terms of the toy you know, felt like he had, he had completed the lot and he wanted almost like Djokovic to take his eye off the ball for, for Wimbledon and maybe that's hoping for that lull given the sense of achievement you know, from Djokovic reaching 23 so I guess you know, the, the, the debate may be out there I know Djokovic at the moment has said he's still full of beans and he's highly, highly motivated. Chris, do you think there is the possibility that he could take his eye off the ball given there doesn't seem to be a lot of competition around him? Rafa's on the the injury list at the moment. Is it possible he could lull into kind of maybe a full sense of security? Well, I did love that moment because I do think you could tell it was one of those Andy Murray interviews where he had sort of a wry smile and a little bit of a chuckle about it in terms of, you know, giving the rest of the field a chance. But I think after that Medvedev final at the US Open, I think now he's got two mm. under the belt. I think he's going to be laser focused on trying to get those other those other two. But as we've said, you know, there's no date for him to return to a grass court yet before Wimbledon. And it's not the easiest thing to play on. And get a bit of a, a warm day, some gusts of wind. And it certainly is the surface where the playing field is as leveled as it can be. Um, It was also interesting the way he talked about Djokovic and the start of his career kind of being an underdog. And I think that's something that we kind of have almost forgotten now that he was someone who was chasing the pack. And I mean, when he won that first um, Australian Open, 
he was very much not seen as the person who would necessarily go on to become no. and surpass those players. And I think that was a really interesting thing that for him, that was one of the first things that Murray mentioned. And I think it's something that we have all kind of forgotten because we're so used to him winning these slams and, and being right up there in contention. And the fact that maybe that's kind of made it even more impressive that he wasn't necessarily expected to do that. Definitely. And uh, yeah, it was, uh, yeah, it was a real kind of, as I say, congratulations was the kind of the overarching uh, message but certainly there was a little bit of like oh, I just hope he's not this good to come come Wimbledon to be honest I've just hope Andy Murray's seeded because I don't want to see Andy Murray Novak Djokovic in the <laughs> in the first round but um yeah I mean another thing we did get to speak about was in the after his um semi-final um was the fact that he's brought Johnny O'Mara into his camp now Johnny O'Mara is like a he's a doubles I'd say he's a doubles specialist he's still playing and he actually won the doubles trophy um in Surbiton this week and um I got to ask him about what it means to have Johnny O'Mara into his camp what he's looking to Johnny O'Mara for to bring to his squad and this is what he had to say You've um, brought Johnny O'Mara into your team um, over the last week or so. Um, can you just talk about the motivations behind that and what you hope he can bring to your squad going into the basketball season? Well, I think that the, the main thing is consistency. Um, you know, with the way that my team has been set up the last year or so, I've really not had that. And at times it's been really difficult you know I've, I think in the first few months of this year like I was on the court with like nine different coaches and you know it's, it's not good um, so I, you know I guarantee with Johnny hopefully that we'll be able to spend you know a lot of time together I'd always had that throughout my career whether that was with Jamie Delgado or Danny Valverde you know even though I had some other coaches dipping in and out you know maybe more experienced ex-players or more experienced coaches dipping in and out I always had like a constant presence there and um, you know that's obviously you know what what I'm looking for from him Um, but He's, he's won the tournament here this week, so I don't know if he's ready Seems to, to be your 100% yeah, uh, cheerleader know, at the moment. Exactly, so I don't know <laughs> if he's uh, if he's ready to give up the, the doubles yet, but um, yeah, hopefully we'll work something out. Well, the big question from that is, will he have the time? And is he fully on board? It feels like a <laughs> job you can't refuse, but if you're still picking up titles... I know. What would you be there doing? There must be some... Yeah, there's a little bit of debate there. The impression I got was that he has joined his camp, but I don't... It's not like he's locked down um, forever for it. Um, I thought it was interesting that, that Murray talked about consistency and he's just looking for as much consistency as possible when it comes to his camp setup. You know, he's not in the days of having... A, you know a super coach uh you know like a, an even Ivan Lendl type figure in his box all the time following him around the tour he's managing his schedule and it's not as packed and, and relentless as it was you know in in his prime and he's hoping I think from Johnny O'Mara he's someone that can just be with him in those moments when he needs to and um you know seeing the the dynamic between the team box and him on court throughout the week i certainly felt that omara was andy murray's cheerleader his uh, his biggest fan which i alluded to in in the interview but um yeah i think he's very positive and um he brings a lot of as i say positive reinforcement i think during the matches as well that i don't think you're necessarily going to get with some of the other kind of people in his team yes they'll kind of stand up and, and clap but I think Omara does a little he does he goes a bit beyond that I feel wait so that's 
you admitting to not being Andy Murray's biggest fan and supporter whilst you were there. So you weren't standing up and weeping Hang on, and I, want, I was wanted to, but again, it was one of those inner fan, got to oppress the inner fan moment. I'm here. Professional um, moment. Professional, yes, exactly. So, um, A representative of the media. <laughs> but yeah, there were certainly, certainly a few uh, come, on, come on Andy chants. But again, because... You know, it was kind of a more traditional afternoon. It was quite quiet at times. Again, you could hear the support and, and again, what Amara was bringing um, to the court. So I think, you know, Andy Murray's comfortable around him, likes him having him when, you know, he's in the match situation and when he were training as well in the pre-matches um, on, on the side courts. Again, just a very good hitting partner to be with. But yeah, as you said, he's still winning. He's still winning titles and... His his before his his career on his on the court is still is still going. So there's going to be some uh, maybe some hard decisions to come down the road. Well, he did say he wanted to spend more time with him, so maybe he should have played the doubles with him this week, and that would have given them kind of a good start from a professional perspective. But that's a very good point because at was Queens, because at Queens, I believe Andy Murray is on the doubles list with Cam Norrie. So this is this is all getting more confusing. But I know. Who were the nine coaches on court with him at the same time? That's the question. My key take, I was thinking <laughs> I can maybe name four people that might be on court at that time. But yeah. I feel like the nine court, nine coaches on court at one time is the same number of coaches that Emma raducanu has been through in her entire time since she joined the tour. So <laughs> maybe Andy Murray should get the title as the player who's been through the most coaches mm. in one season. Yeah. I mean, as I say, kind of he is really looking for consistency and people who can just, I think, be there you know when what like when they can and i you know i still think it's like the andy murray show and everyone is you know supporting him and certainly he's got the people in his team who've been with him you know throughout like the majority of of his career but yeah we'll see where it goes with um omara but yeah he certainly feels like a good fit and a good addition fellow scott as well doesn't hurt so uh yeah it'll be exciting to see if that prospers yeah absolutely and then Another hot topic, because you say like it's very much the Andy Murray show. And I think what we mm. love about the Andy Murray show at the moment is that he goes where he feels like and goes yeah. where he thinks he should be. And so I mean, the challenger circuit been, is just the, the Andy Murray show, isn't it? It is. I mean, it's been 17 years, was it, since his last title? And then when it rains, it pours. And you've got to ask him about the fact that there is this sort of change in challenger events. And I think it was fascinating to hear like his experience after such a long time away to then playing and winning challenges again, how much he thinks they've changed. So we can we can hear from him now. And you've, you've had great success on the challenger circuit of late. Just wanted to know what's your kind of perception of the challenger circuit as a player? What's the kind of perception? How has that changed over time? Do you think as you, in your kind of playing career? Um, it feels to me like obviously a lot of the challengers now like they're, they're, there's more points on offer at a lot of them. Um, so the draws tend to be tend to be stronger, I think, than when I was coming up. A lot of the challengers, like 50 and 75k challengers, whereas now they've got like the 175 ones, which, to be honest, they're not really like challengers. The draws have been more like 250 events, um, and more of these 125s, 100k challengers. And I feel like the level has has improved. More players are trying to. You know, pick up, pick up points at these events, and you see here. I mean, you got me and Neville. I think are two top 50 players. Kubler is obviously, you know, top 100. I don't know exactly how many top 100 players there is. I think there's nine or ten here. So, um, you know, and a few of them pulled out as well. So I, I feel like the the level has has improved. 
really, really interesting, I think, in terms of cha- challengers and the tour, how it's positioned, because over his career, I feel like it's changed a lot. This was where the sentiments of my of my question was coming from in terms of the fact that when I was growing up, the challenger circuit was really just solely for up and comers to prove to prove themselves and make the transition onto the tour whereas now i still feel like you get those stories and that's still the case for the challenger circuit but it's certainly got this other end of the spectrum position i think or appeal and uh you know we're seeing that i think with with andy murray particularly um, but we're seeing other players you know play on the on the on the challenger circuit and you know, see you know, Kei Nishikori was on it yesterday tommy paul tommy was paul. also playing a challenger we had berrettini on a list yeah. early in the year when so, we had that phoenix challenger so it doesn't feel like challenges anymore are exclusively for up and comers in the in or around the 100 ranking or or below actually there are a lot more top players playing on it and it's really interesting to hear, I think, about the, the number of ranking points that are available. It's 125. It's not 100, 125. And to think, you know, in my head, to think, well, if this event is going on the same week as the French Open, where, you know, majority of my competition might still be or not really having a thought on, on the grass court season as of yet, it's a perfect opportunity to make some pretty decent ranking points and get my ranking up to a potential seeding. Yeah, and I think even 175, you can have a challenger. So it's almost like Mm. the 175 is now the 250. The 250 is now the 500 in terms of the players that they're attracting. And some of the players who've had massive successes on the challenger tour, like Max Purcell, I think he picked up a trio of challengers in a row. And kind of um, Ugo Umber, like he's also been doing really well on the challenger circuit. And you don't actually have to get that, that many wins. Um, at the ATP level in order to get your ranking up when there are 175 points available. And I think, I know I always seem like I'm gunning for Maya Sharif, but she's the prime example (laughs) from the WTA Tour in my mind and Sara Irani as well, who are able to get their ranking up by playing in some of these slightly less um, glamorous locations. But the points are still available. So I think it's really interesting to see what will happen, especially with the WTA thinking about not letting players in the top 30 play 250s even. So it's such a stark contrast, but... The balance is 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 definitely, I think, shifting. And I don't know, Chris, I mean, 125 points, 175 points. Is that too much, do you think, for the challenger circuit? Well, I was reading something and it did say that by reaching... The, 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 by winning the title, sorry, Murray almost defended all of his Stuttgart points. Yeah. And that's obviously a tournament that's a bigger tournament in waiting. That's a 250. So, And also the, the quality of players just to get to the final in that, it's, it's just not, it's just not comparable, is it, really? It's to... stacked over there. I mean, it's yeah. sponsored by Hugo Boss. It's it's worlds apart in terms of the stature and, mm. and, and in that sense and the prize money as well. Um, but I, I do think the waiting is probably a little bit off. There's a, a few too many opportunities, I think, on the Challenger Tour for players to kind of get their ranking up when, I mean, surviving by getting big wins on the Tour is how you should do it. But having said that, if Murray, as I've said this before, and I think you'll agree, if Murray's going to play a Challenger, I would love to be there um, and to see that. And I think that's great for the fans as well. So that is super exciting. I would ask you another question, Joel. Was there a question that you'd have loved to ask that you didn't get to ask Murray? Or did you manage to ask everything and the Djokovic questions would have superseded what you had? Would you have asked about that final? (laughs) The one that you saw him in? 
Yeah, I say I don't know actually. I think I got all the questions asked that I, I, I you know, I wanted to ask. There was also another interesting question on on night matches and night scheduling in relation to the French Open that you gave a, a really interesting response to. I could have just come out and said, I was there when you won your first Grand Slam. I just want to, you know, say it was such an honour. But you Did know, you again, want to? <laughs> I Did you wanted want to, to a little but bit? you know, yeah. I had to, I had to, uh, you know, k- k- had, again, had to kind of suppress that. But um, yeah, I feel like I got the, the three questions I, I, I came in for. But um, yeah, really, really exciting opportunity to, to speak to Andy. And You uh, kept your cool. Represent the pod. You nailed it, Joel. <laughs> I know. We need to. We need to get on to kind of Kim's. I think tennis player interview. That's what we said. Wish that was list. the chat in the in the WhatsApp thread. It was right. We've hit Murray, and you're like, I'm done. Joel's tapping out. He's he's no longer on the podcast. How do we get Rafa? How do we get Rafa? That's the We've big got to question. Get Rafa, Rafa for Kim and Hanchakova for me. Hang or on, Sloan. Yeah. Sloan. Sorry. Not and Maya then- Sharif. I mean, I feel like if I met her, I'd have to apologise initially. <laughs> but then maybe I would actually be kicked off the pod for that. But still, that's a it's a it's a bucket list thing for the pod. So unbelievable. I know exactly, and uh, we we well we won't give the game away just yet, but we're hoping to get some more player content coming up over the grass court season. So you'll need to watch out on our socials uh, to, to keep an eye on who we might be able, uh, who might we be speaking to across the grass court season. But we're going to take a quick break now, but join us in the second half where we will be hearing from the new British ladies, number one, Katie Balter. And we get an insight from one of the volunteers from Surbiton on what it's like to work at the event. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems. But getting therapy has its own problems, too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and, of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Welcome back to the Tennis Weekly Podcast, sponsored by DownloadTennis.com. And now we're going to move on to the women's side and talking a little bit about Katie Balter, the British ladies ranking, and just, Chris, the number of the number of people who could be the British ladies number one at the moment in this post-Radicanu moment. Yeah, and I think it's the, one of the first times we actually have had three players who are British through to the semifinals for the women's side, mm. which is genuinely really impressive and I think hopefully having kind of been there for the Billie Jean King Cup and seen some of the awkwardness around selection and players rankings it does feel like um, some of these results and Brits doing well like this week like we've seen Heather Watson has got a couple of really good wins um, through to the quarterfinals of Nottingham for the first time it does feel like 
hopefully the grass court season and some of these wild cards and qualifying wild cards can bring about a much more positive narrative around women's tennis, especially in the absence of, of Raducanu. Yeah, it definitely gave, I think, Anki Vong a lot to think. I saw her very busy, um, very watching on kind of studiously um, from the from the media seats. Um, so yes, I definitely think it's given her a lot to think about, particularly with, uh, you know, GB coming up. There's still obviously a lot of time, but I'm really curious to see who comes out on top in terms of the, particularly I think on the ladies' side at the end of the grass court season, because we're in this immediate post-Radakanu moment and we're looking to see who takes the mantle. And I think it's exciting because it it feels like it could be anyone at the moment because they're all playing great tennis. You know, you've got Harriet Dart, you've got Jodie Burridge, Katie Swan, Katie Balter. I think they're all going to be vying for that that top spot. And um, it's again, it was interesting throughout the week to hear from from these players and their kind of perspective on the ladies number one ranking because I think for some players it's it's like the next goal it's their target they've been working towards it this year but for other players it felt like it was you know there are other things on their mind yeah and that was something that I think um was a really big talking point because this was the week when the British number one was going to change from Emma Raducanu and it was who will it be and the player who ended up being was Katie Bulter who um is ranked at 126 and is now the British number one, um, which on paper does not sound particularly impressive. And I think we have had a bit of a habit of making fun of some of the the French number one situation. Um, But on the female side of the British number one, I think it's actually much more um, of a a bit of an unfortunate story. So what is interesting is that it did change over last week and that Katie Bolter has actually been talking about it on social media. And it's this idea that kind of, she wasn't sure whether she was going to celebrate it or whether she was going to post about it um, because it isn't her career high ranking, her career high rankings in the top, uh, top 90. Um, and so I think it's one where it's obviously something to be very proud of being the British number one. But at the same time, I think when you talked about it, the goal is not necessarily the British number one for her. It's actually to do something much more. Yeah. So I spoke to, Katie Balter about the British number one ranking and where it ranked for her in terms of her priorities and this is what she had to say about it and you're just talking about your ranking that being one of your targets what is your goal in terms of where would you like to see yourself at the end of the grass court season in terms of those look I I think it's easy to put numbers on it and and it's not ever been a focus of mine of course I want to be I want to be 50 in the world, but I have to be realistic at the same time. Um, you know, we have an opportunity with Wimbledon having points again to hopefully pick up some points. And um, I think I'm just going to cherish each week that I play and really hope that I can gain some momentum. I think, you know, last year I didn't play Surbiton. I didn't have a chance to. So I'm just grateful to actually have played four matches this week. I think that's a, a huge step in the right direction after playing a lot of tennis recently. And so interestingly, it does seem like she's not so much interested in the British number one ranking. She's much more interested in her own personal goals and development. Um, but I think we've said this before about Katie Bolter that she does play top 50 tennis when she's on. And it's great she has that self-awareness around the consistency. Um, what was your take on the fact that that's her attitude towards being the British number one and her own professional development? Yeah, I think consistency is something that is hard to come by, I think, when it comes to, to Katie Balter. We've all seen that she has a really big game when it's on. You know, she she plays great on, on the grass courts. I think she has the biggest game of 
the British uh, ladies that we've spoken about. And I think it's well suited to the, the WTA tour, but she just lacks that consistency to, to string it together match by match. And I was surprised in the semi-final just how convincingly Wickmeyer was able to defeat her. It was 6-3, 6-2. And when I saw that result, I was thinking, oh, Katie Swan doesn't hit as big as Katie Balter. She's going to have no chance against Janina Wickmeyer. But actually, it was a complete opposite. Um, you know, she pushed Wickmeyer to final set tiebreak. So I think for Balter, having that consistency, getting that is not an easy thing to come by. And if she's got, she's harboring hopes of getting further up the rankings, pushing to top 50, I have no doubt that she's got the talent and the capability to do that. But in order to do it, she's going to need to be able to do it match by match, week in, week out, and put a decent string of of results together on the tour, which I think, you know, if we're being her harshest critic, I think up to now, it's been there sometimes, but then it's, it's felt a little bit like one step forward, two steps back. Yeah, and it does feel like she's one of those players that she talked about it in press before, that she has on off days and on days. And sometimes it won't be her best tennis. And I think what's great about the performance she's putting together with the semi-final showing, if she can consistently do that, whether that's below the WTA or whether that's a WTA level, then there is steps in the right direction. So I think she's going to have a great grass court season. Um, and on the subject of grass, we were, um, well, you were, um, able to talk behind the scenes about some of the experiences that people had um, being a volunteer at a grass court event, the first grass court mm. event of the year, the LTA have this wonderful team of volunteers and you got to speak to a friend of the podcast who was explaining just some of the challenges, but also some of the wonderfully British elements of it in terms of what life is like as a volunteer at Surbiton. I know. I spoke to Liz, uh, who was one of the volunteers from the LTA. We had a very good chat about what it takes to be a volunteer at an event on, in the British grass court summer season and this is what she had to say when you're on shift as a volunteer your priority has to be the work and you know if you're stewarding you are looking making sure that everybody's safe and people are getting to the right places and to the right seats um and you might be there's a number of jobs you might be doing ticketing you know scanning people's tickets on the way in you might be greeting them as they leave and wishing them a good day so we're trying to make it the best kind of customer experience it is for people coming to enjoy a day at the tennis but also keeping an eye on health and safety um and the other job i did which was um i put my hand up for this yeah well, they said if anybody wants to do the manual scoreboards, which is a bit of a oh, throwback. Oh, yes. So I Was said, everyone clamouring for that role? No, not many people were. So I had put my name up for it. And on my first shift, I got here and the team leader said, right, you said you'd do scoreboards. <laughs> Come now, because you need to swap. Which court was it on? Which court was it on? It was on court two. Oh, so okay. court two and three are the ones that they have it on. So I got thrown in the deep mm. end. Um, I mean, as a tennis fan, though, it's really cool, though, to get those kind of novel experiences you just like even to get onto the court to actually step it's unbelievable the, the other side of the barrier was just amazing but it was also my second match that i did was um mm. pop you in against saville and i realized in the warm-up suddenly these balls were coming and hitting <laughs> hitting the manual scoreboard really hard hey that's my scoreboard but also i realized that i was in some significant danger if they hit yeah. me in the face so mm -hmm. i when they were serving from that end mm -hmm. i didn't sit in my chair i stood up so that i could move <laughs> so, i mean there were a few close shows but i didn't get hit but you realize how fast it is but it is so it's very exciting to mm -hmm. be there and watch mm. 
and be so close but it is also nerve-wracking because you got to know what's going on sure. and I always make sure that I knew what I thought the scoreboard was going to move to before the umpire called it but there were a few moments if you lose track it's something like where am I and what am I mm. doing <laughs> but thankfully I got it all right but yeah I'll tell you what, it sounds like you have to almost need some protective headgear. I hadn't thought about that, that <laughs> not only are you thinking you've got to be good with numbers and changing the scores, you've also got to be able to cover yourself and protect the moneymaker. I know. It was day uh, one. Yeah, it's there's a it's a high pressured you know situation. I think it's um you know it's obviously I think from a if you're a tennis fan and and you know you're looking to get involved in the game, it's a great way I think to get kind of unique experiences that you might not necessarily get as a fan for example you know walking onto the court being involved with the the scoreboards maybe not so much getting big serves being hit at you but I think that yeah it's a fan you know it's a fantastic opportunity and I think it just shows that events like this they rely on volunteers to, to be put on. You know, Surbiton is not a small event. It's a combined event. There's lots going on at any one time. And the volunteers really are there to kind of help make sure it runs smoothly and offer, you know, a level of ser- level of service to the event that makes it feel when you're in there like it's a properly run event. And I think, you know, if we're going back and talking about the French Open and seeing some of the issues we've seen there, particularly in terms of management and, and scheduling, putting on events is, is no mean feat. And um, Surbiton, I think, really hit the nail on the head with that. Yeah, and no Hawkeye, I imagine, as well. So you've got to rely on the volunteers making those good Mm. line calls as well and getting the scoring right. And it's all very much a throwback to, you know, the Wimbledon days when (laughs) I remember used to change the scoreboard. You would physically, someone would come out with the... I remember watching Daniela Hedgecova, of course, and it has the actual name and you've got to slot the name in on the court and then change every single point. So... I think it is a bit of a, a throwback to those old school grass court days, right, Joel? <laughs> I know. I was wondering, actually, do they have Hawkeye um, at Challenger Tour level or even ITF events? Because it was such a well-run tournament. I was wondering, um, you know, did they have all the bells and whistles? I'm not sure if, I'm not actually sure if Hawkeye technology is allowed on, on the Challenger Tour because um, of of costs and, and you know stuff like that. But um, yeah, there were definitely just uh, certainly kind of like, you know, a throwback to an era of you know you got to rely on the you know on the on the umpires on the umpires and the the line judges calls and to think that the ATP tour have already said that we're not going to have you know line umpires in the future we're just going to have electronic line calling um you know in in years to come I don't know where that leaves the challenger circuit because I do genuinely feel like they rely on on volunteers whether that be um, you know, staff, but also you know, line line judges to to make sure that you know, each match is is played in a way that doesn't have um, that we have definitive answers, and it's not just like two players on a court with you know with no out signalling, or or they're just you know left to their own devices. Well, maybe all of the line judges will drop down to the Challenger Tour, and the mm. Challenger Tour will head even further in a positive direction, as we've heard from Andy Murray about how much more professional it has gotten. Um, but thank you so much to Liz and all the volunteers. It sounds like they put on a wonderful event for you to attend, Joel. And I think that you'll definitely want to be heading back there next year. Absolutely. Yeah, it was a fantastic event. And uh, yeah, I hope to make, hope to hope to see it again because yeah, it's such a lovely setting. I don't think you get to go to tennis clubs of that size that often to go to 
these sorts of events. I'm obviously well aware that Wimbledon is run at, at, a, at a tennis club per se, but this has a different, unique feel and atmosphere to it that I certainly recommend to anyone who has the opportunity or gets the chance to go. And I'll tell you what, you get to see Andy Murray at both Wimbledon <laughs> and also Surbiton. So I have to say, what a moment for the pod um, and a moment for you, Joel, in terms of not once, not twice, but three questions to Andy Murray. And just think about how busy that media room will be at Wimbledon. I know. I was uh, Every day I was left with a smile thinking about, uh, yeah, what, where, where the pod has gone. But um, yeah, Moments no, was, with Murray. <laughs> moments with Murray. Exactly. Exactly. It was almost kind of like, uh, yeah, I was a little bit kind of starstruck, but it was a uh, yeah, incredible, incredible achievement. So, yes. Listeners, I hope you've enjoyed our latest episode of Tennis Weekly Podcast. Remember to subscribe to us to stay up to date on all the grass court action to come this season. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all major podcasting platforms out there. And if you like what you're hearing, then make sure to leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can also follow us on social media or email the show. We're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and TikTok. And so you can see all of the updates from Joel at Surbiton, which we'll be posting. And all of those channels, we are Tennis Weekly Pod. You can also email the show, tennisweeklypod at gmail.com or check out our website, tennisweekly.co.uk. And we will be back next Monday at Tennis Weekly HQ for our first grass tour catch-up of the season. So I hope you can join us for that. But in the meantime, it's goodbye from Chris. Goodbye. And it's goodbye from me. We'll see you again soon.